0: Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where leading authors explore how they get their ideas by bringing a series of inspirational objects to the studio. Today, it's not a studio, but the iconic Sheldonian Theatre in Oxford. I'm Sophie Dahl, and in this special live edition, I'm joined by one of the most highly regarded children's authors writing today. He was the first author to win the Whitbread Award for a children's book. And his trilogy, his Dark Materials, has been adapted into a feature film, theatre, radio, and a forthcoming big-budget BBC TV series. My guests' special objects include a Montblanc pen and a magical gold device as owned by his female protagonist. It is, of course, Sir Philip Pullman. Philip, welcome. Thank you. Before we explore your chosen objects we can't let the significance of our location pass us by. We're in the heartland of your books. What is it about Oxford that's so special to you?
1: Uh, Well Oxford is um, a very good place to write about because nobody knows the whole of it. There are always little bits that you've never seen before or a street corner that you never come across or somebody's left a door open and you look through and there's a garden that you had no idea was there it's a very easy place to um leave and go to another world from yes and also it's right on my doorstep so i don't have to go very far you may
0: all be aware that philip has a new book The Secret Commonwealth is the second in the Book of Dust trilogy, which continues the story of his Dark Materials. Can you tell us a little bit about where we are now in this book? Because I think probably a lot of people in here won't have yet read the exquisite book.
1: Of course, yeah. His Dark Materials um, tells of a fairly short stretch of time, certainly less than a year, in the life of a girl called Lyra, who is about 11ish, 12ish, when that happens. After I published that, I thought that was it and there was no more of Lyra's story to tell. But thinking about it afterwards, I did realise that um, if you have just had the biggest adventure in your life and it's all over and you're 12 years old, what have we got to look forward to? Um, Something else had to happen. And meanwhile, Lyra was growing up because she does grow, she passes through that... Stage that William Blake called the change between innocence and experience in the course of that story. Um, So, time is passing. This isn't one of those stories where the hero or the heroine remains exactly the same age through 50 or 60 different (laughs) books. Um, Lyra's going to grow up. And I was intrigued by what she was going to do and how she was going to live and what she was going to discover, what she was going to feel about life in general so a part of me i guess was always wondering about that and the world was moving on the world our world was changing and getting more and more affected by things that hadn't really existed when i wrote the first series there weren't the crises of refugees and wars uh the, the, the the terrible wars that we've been seeing since
0: yes and so in the new book where is lyra and what is she off to do
1: Well, La Belle Sauvage was set ten years before His Dark Materials when Lyra was just a baby. So the main action in La Belle Sauvage concerns a boy called Malcolm, who's about the age Lyra was in the first series. And the second book, 20 years have gone past since that, so it's ten years after His Dark Materials. And Lyra is a young woman of 20. She's an undergraduate at Oxford. And she is um, in all kinds of trouble,
0: she is um Lyra has spent time in the last book Oxford the Arctic and now she's in the Middle East
1: that's right I never set out to write a story to illustrate a particular theme
0: does that just reveals itself as you're as you're writing it yes. com- it comes yes to you. Yeah. yes
1: what intrigues me what I want to write and what I set out deliberately to write about are particular places or particular images or particular incidents or events yeah um, it was the North that intrigued me so much. I wanted to go there in the story, in these art materials. In this case, it was Central Asia, which is a, a realm uh, of um, huge magic and excitement for me. Have you been? No, I went to the Bodleian Library.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: which is a lot closer and a lot more comfortable and a lot less expensive. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and it has all you need, really. I didn't go. Didn't go to the Arctic for the first for his dark materials. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm a lazy, you know, travel. I don't like it. It's all too hot or too cold. And um,
0: your first object, I, she has Lyra to navigate yep. these worlds well, that you're imagining in the Bodleian Library. What she, does she um, have?
1: She's given early on in the story the opens his dark materials. She's given an object by the Master of Jordan College. She's given an alethiometer. And there is an actual alethiometer. There are only six made. And, um, <laughs> and I've got one of them. Actually, there have been several hundred made now. There's props for films and various things. But they don't work, and this one does. Um, it's a truth-telling device. That's what the, the name means, Aletheia, the truth. And it works by means of symbolism. The symbols around, 36 symbols around the edge of this picture, and you move the hands to point to three of the symbols in total with which you ask a question, and then the hand moves around and settles on the different symbols that give you the answer. But I first read a book called The Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition by a woman called Frances Yeats who is the great expert on um, Renaissance symbolism and imagery and so on. And that's what, um, many years later, made me think of these symbols that you can use to ask and answer questions.
0: May I describe them for the people who are are listening and not here? So this is this enchanting golden compass, and there are symbols all along it. So we have a beehive, we have an apple, there's a raven. Absolutely beautiful, and it really works. I used it downstairs. You ask it a question and um, pull well, up the th- They
1: all work in different ways. Lyra's works um, slightly differently from this. Yes. Lyra's is a slightly different shape too because this one is rather thick and you couldn't really easily put it in a pocket. As you I could. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you could
0: just take it and um, put it in I the pocket. I think the
1: one they're using in the telly series is square.
0: Oh, no. A travesty <laughs>
1: <laughs> but apparently it works, so that's
0: all right. <laughs> There's a wonderful bit in the secret Commonwealth where some kindly Welsh miners try and hmm. work out what metal the oligheometer yes. is made from.
1: Yes, it's made from a particular alloy, which is very difficult to make, but which was created by the, in the um, early 17th century in the Prague in Lyra's world. Um, and she visits Prague in the course of this story uh, and has an encounter there with an alchemist. Prague is is a fascinating place. I have been to Prague, unlike the Central Asian or the Alchemist. <laughs> and it is a, a, a wonderful place. So it's quite easy to imagine things like that coming yes. from Prague.
0: Yeah, originating mm. from Prague. You wrote in the Guardian about the importance of magic. You said that magic was a crucial part of being human, mm. and I just wondered whether you could expand a bit more on that because obviously magic is such a huge part of what you write about. Yes.
1: Well, I look at this in the context of reason and rationality. And rationality is a most wonderful thing, and it's given us science and mathematics. It's given us all sorts of ways of relating to one another that we didn't have before. And I certainly don't disparage reason or decry it at all. But like many things, it is a wonderful servant but a bad master. And if you lived your life according to reason, you'd never fall in love. Rationalism, pure reason, divorced from emotion, divorced from the feelings we have for one another, for um, the things around us, for our pets, for our beauty and so on, is a very poor thing. The way I come to it in this story, The Secret Commonwealth was a title I stole from a book called The... The Secret Commonwealth, or an Essay on the Nature and Actions of the Subterranean and, for the most part, Invisible People, heretofore going under the names of fauns and fairies or the like, among the Low Country Scots, as described by those who have second sight. <laughs> now, <laughs> um, I, I learned many things from that book, not least the importance of a snappy title. <laughs> Uh, but the, Robert Kirk's book, which was written at the latter part of the 17th century, is exactly that. It's a guide to folklore, really, and the superstitions and beliefs of the people who, whom he served as a as minister in, the ch- in his church in Scotland. And, and folklore and folk tales have always been very, very important to me. Um, I did a version of Grimm's Tales some years ago... Um, I'm a fascinated reader of uh, folktales from wherever they come from. British folktales are particularly good.
0: They're full of archetypes, aren't they? They're, they're so important.
1: Well, they're full of things that can't really exist or can't really happen. Yeah. Nevertheless, they seem to give us ways of thinking, ideas and images to think with yeah. that are actually very important.
0: Do you have talismans or rituals around your writing? Are you superstitious about your writing?
1: I'm superstitious about everything.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: but yes, I do. I have, I have a particular paper to write on. I can only write on A4 paper that's narrow-lined and it's got two holes in it. Uh, I tried writing on four-hole paper. It just doesn't work. LAUGHTER um, and I've got to be I've got to be surrounded by my, my bits and pieces, my particular pen my particular uh, barometer if I haven't got the, that there I don't feel, do you feel complete a bit uh, not right. so yeah, I'm, uh, yeah I'm, I'm extremely superstitious. and do
0: you have your pen I think yeah, you have your pen indeed. with you we have uh, I've a been writing pen?
1: I've always written by hand because although I can type fast as everybody can these days, I prefer writing my novels with a pen which I keep in this little green pen case um, and I like this particular pen because it's a perfect weight and a perfect size and it doesn't tire my hand out.
0: So this is Philip's next object so this is his yes. Mont Blanc pen that he writes. And, with. and if
1: you can't advertise on your podcast tough because I'm going to tell it's a Mont Blanc <laughs> pen um, and it's a jolly good one so this is my my magic pen uh, but I don't know if it's magic it's just a very nice pen. And I use it because it works.
0: Do you write to music? Because as we can hear, there's a saxophone playing outside.
1: <laughs> well, all I can say is I'm glad I'm not writing at the moment. <laughs> well, I don't mind that now. But,
0: but um, certainly not, not not to write no, to. No, you no, know. I
1: want to listen to the music. I don't, I don't want to sort of ignore it. And,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, besides the r- rhythm of music gets in the way of the rhythm of what I want to say.
0: That's interesting. Um, so,
1: because prose has a rhythm. Yes. It's got to have a rhythm, or else it just sits there on the page like a suet so pudding. Um, and I have to hear it. So I don't mind noise that isn't music. I don't mind pneumatic drills or traffic. Okay, or, but
0: music is a, music is a big thing. But music is problem.
1: absolute killer. Yeah. And I, I love music too much to ignore it.
0: There's so much loss and longing in The Secret Commonwealth. And in it, Pan chastises Lyra for losing touch with her magic self, her imagination, and says at one point, you're killing yourself and me with the way you're thinking. You're in a world full of colour, and you want to see it in black and white. Mm. Can you tell us why this struggle between Pan and Lyra is so integral to the book?
1: This is one of the things that happens to people when they grow up. She and Pan, when they were in The World of the Dead, in The Amber Spyglass had to separate, had to come apart from each other, which is very difficult to do. Every child try as they're growing up, you, do, you see how far away you can get from your demon. It hurts, so you don't do it. But she has to, in that passage, and so they're now, as it were, separated.
0: And they are estranged, aren't they? They are, are...
1: Uh, yes. Uh, and this, years later, ten years later or so, in in the secret commonwealth means that they're kind of alienated from yeah. each other which is a very unhappy state to be in
0: you've said that demons are the best idea you've ever had do you still stand to that
1: well it's an idea with which i found i could do lots of things it's a metaphor for all kinds of human feelings and human situations the real discovery was not just that everybody has a demon it's that children's demons change shape and mm-hmm. adults' demons don't that was the the pivot the thing around which the whole of His Dark Materials turns. Yes. And when I discovered that, it was the moment at which I saw, um, at last, a way through the story that I'd been trying to get started for a long time.
0: That's interesting. But also, it's, it, I think as a narrative device, it's so clever too because you get to weave between...
1: Well, you get a kind of inkling of what people yes. like from what their demon is. Yes.
0: Yeah. There was a sentence um, in the book that really struck me about Lyra's sense of outsiderness, And again, it really reminded me of being a teenager. And it was it was deeply tiring, not knowing how long she'd be here or how she'd know it was safe to leave and knowing only that she didn't belong. Yeah. And it really resonated with me, that sentence, that feeling of thinking there's nowhere that I feel quite yes. at home.
1: That's right. It's a sort of Cinderella feeling. Mm. A feeling that um, you'd be born in the wrong family by mistake. Yes. Um, that you're
0: looking for your adoption papers. Well, something <laughs> like that. Or, or, yeah.
1: yeah. Or, or, who are these people I have to live with?
0: Yeah.
1: The taste in music is appalling. I don't like the wallpaper. <laughs> Nobody loves me. I'm going to run away. You know, it's that sort of feeling. Yeah. Uh, and that's the, that's the start of our life story, really, when we, when we begin to separate and dis- distinguish ourselves from the people we've grown up with.
0: There yeah. is something so otherworldly about that transition. So demon, spelt... D-A-E-M-O-N and words like ambaric are words that you've created yet you find this next book of words vital and your next object oh, yeah. is
1: this very battered and much repaired copy of Chambers' 20th Century Dictionary and um, it's random access you can look up things very, very quickly I like Chambers's because um I think this is the one they use for Scrabble. It's the official Scrabble dictionary. Because it's got a lot of unusual words in it.
0: Will you find us a few? Uh,
1: yes. I, I, I wrote down all the, all the odd definitions I found here. Cheddar. What does it say about cheddar? Um, an excellent kind of cheese. <laughs> First made in cheddar in Cheshire. Tragedy. Brackets. Journalism. Anything with death and killing in it.
0: <laughs> so, do you think we've lost the art of dictionaries?
1: I can now have access to every single word that the Oxford English Dictionary has ever defined. Hundreds of thousands of them on the internet. Yeah. But I still go to that first.
0: Yeah. There was a word that you, that you had in here which was. Oh, is it porky? P A W K? Yes,
1: it's got a sort of dry wit.
0: Yes, I like it. Porky. It's sort of dry
1: wit, it's a Scottish word. A lot of Scottish words in there because it was first published in Edinburgh there are some, some that have become famous eclair a cake long in shape but short in duration <laughs> for example but you only find them by looking through the dictionary
0: yeah you discovered storytelling as a teacher retelling tales such as the Iliad over and over again what, mm. did, what did that teach you as a writer
1: uh, well firstly what I was good at and what I wasn't good at yeah If I try to tell funny stories, they don't work. I just can't do it. I can't tell realistic stories about modern life. What I can do is tell stories in which you want to know what happens next and I can give enough description to enable you to see before your mind's eye the place where this is taking place. I learned that by telling stories to children. And I also learned a little bit about timing, I suppose. If you know that the the bell is going to go in three minutes, then you can bring that very exciting bit where Achilles hears about the death of Patroclus and goes up onto the walls and looks at the walls of his camp and looks out across the plain of Troy and the setting sun strikes his golden helmet and everybody knows what he's going to do next. And then the bell goes. And they they want to stay in and hear it, not go out and play. It's great when you manage that. Well, I
0: think they want to hear it if you have a... A wonderful, so, charismatic I, I was, English teacher. I was just
1: very lucky to, to teach at a time when I was allowed to do that without yeah. being forced to deal with... <laughs>
0: so that was my next Fronted question. adverbials. Oh. Fronted adverbials. We're in the land of fronted adverbials at the it's moment. It's a
1: terrible, bleak yeah, place. it's
0: bleak. Um, <laughs> you had more creative freedom as a teacher. Yes. Yes.
1: And I think teachers need this. Children need this. Yeah. Children need time with books. Books were not written so that children could search through them for metaphors and similes and underline them on worksheets. You need to have time with a book to let it do its work and you shouldn't pester children for a response straight away either.
0: I agree with you. I really hear you. There is a Brecht quote that... Rang through my head as I read *The Secret Commonwealth*, which in many ways is a lot darker in tone than *La Belle Sauvage*. And it's in the dark times. Will there also be singing? Mm. Yes, there will be singing about the dark times. Yeah. And I kept yes, that's hearing isn't it? that. I love that. It's yeah. a great, great. And I feel yeah. like, as a writer, why do you think it's so important to reflect the dark times?
1: Because we're living in them. Yeah. And because. Unless a story tells the reader something about what it's like to be alive at a time like this, um, it's not really worth reading. But the times we are in are times where we, don't, we the British, don't really know who we are. Um, are we English? Or are we something in, called the UK? Or what are we? And we've got people with very loud voices telling us that we're this or we're that. Um, and it's also a time when people are arriving on our shore having almost drowned because they're fleeing from something far worse even than Boris Johnson. And these these things concern me as a citizen, as a human being, as a a grown-up. So, of course, they're going to be reflected in something I write.
0: We need books like yours. We need music that, that talks about life as it is because also then you feel part of a, of a collective and also it doesn't feel quite so grim.
1: It's very generous of you to say that. That's what I always hope for, of course. You, you hope that people are going to find enough in the stories you write to um, want to read them again.
0: I think, think they do. Go up by the next one. I think they do. <laughs> so your last object, which is your desk, Yes, and I couldn't bring
1: that because it's too big. Um, I've got a, a, a wonderful electronic desk, or electric, I suppose, really, which I just press a button and it rises up or, or goes down. And it, anybody who writes f- for any long period of time or sits at a desk doing anything for any period of time knows that it, you, you get back ache. And the best way of doing this is to change the height at which you work. Yeah. So I can um, lift it up and put it as high as the lectern there, and stand up and work. Or I can have it down low. And And
0: how how big is it?
1: Oh, it's a big it's a big table. Okay. And it's covered with paper and scissors and pens and pencils and pencil sharpeners and knives to sharpen pencils when I can't find the pencil sharpener. (laughs) And my barometer and a lamp and uh, all sorts of stuff.
0: Usually at this point in the podcast we play an extract from the audiobook but many people will have heard your excellent book reading skills on the His Dark Materials audiobook so we'd love to hear you read a bit more if you will.
1: This is um, shortly after the opening of the story and in the opening of the story uh, Pan who is remember not with Lyra um, he sees a murder taking place. And the victim gives him, just before he dies, the victim says, take my wallet, take my wallet. And Pan takes it and takes it back to Lyra. And here they are looking at it. They turned on the gas fire in her study bedroom at St Sophia's, sat at the table and switched on the little ambaric lamp because the sky was grey and the light outside was gloomy. Lyra took out the wallet from the bookshelf. It was a simple one-fold wallet without a clasp, the whole thing little bigger than her palm. There had originally been a raised grain in the leather, like that of Morocco, but most of that was worn away to her greasy smoothness. It might once have been brown, too, but it was nearly black now and marked in several places by Pan's gripping teeth. She could smell it, a faint, slightly pungent, slightly spicy smell, like that of a man's cologne mixed with sweat pan waved a paw in front of his nose lyra opened the wallet and again found it perfectly normal perfectly ordinary there were four banknotes not a large sum in the next pocket she found a train ticket for the return journey from paris to marseilles was he french said pan don't know yet said lyra look here's a picture from the next pocket in the wallet she took out a grubby and much handled identity card with a photogram showing the face of a man of possibly 40 years old with black curly hair and a thin moustache. That's him, Pan said. That's the murdered man. The card had been issued by His Majesty's Foreign Office to Anthony John Roderick Hassel, who was a British citizen whose birthday showed him to be 38 years old. The demon photogram displayed a small hawk-like bird of prey. Pan gazed at the pictures with intense interest and pity. The next thing she found was a small card she recognised because she had one identical to it in her own purse. It was a Bodleian Library card. And then there was another card, this one issued by the University Department of Botany. It certified Dr. Roderick Hassel as a member of staff of the Department of Plant Sciences. Why would they want to attack him, Lyra said? Did he look rich or was he carrying something or what? They did say, Pan said, trying to remember. One of them, the killer, he, he was surprised that the man wasn't carrying a bag. It sounded as if they'd been expecting him to. But well, was he carrying a bag, said Lyra, or a briefcase or suitcase or anything? No, nothing. The next paper she found was much folded and refolded and reinforced with tape along the creases. It was headed laissez Passé. What's that, said Pam. Kind of passport, I think, said Lyra. It had been issued by the Ministry of Internal Security of the sublime port of the Ottoman Empire at Constantinople. It said in French, English and Anatolian that Antony John Roderick Hassel, botanist of Oxford, Britain, was to be allowed to travel through the realms of the Ottoman Empire and that the authorities were to give him assistance and protection whenever needed. How big is the Ottoman Empire, said Pan? Enormous. Turkey and Syria and Lebanon and Egypt and Libya and thousands of miles east as well, I think. Wait, here's another. But what's this? Her fingers had found another paper hidden in an inside pocket. She tugged it out and unfolded it to find something quite different from the rest. A leaflet from a steamship company advertising a cruise to the Levant on a vessel called the SS Zenobia. It was issued by the Imperial Orient Line and the English language text promised a world of romance and sunshine. A world of silks and perfumes, Pan read, of carpets and sweetmeats, of damascene swords, of the glint of beautiful eyes beneath the star filled sky. Dance to the romantic music of Carlo Pomerini and his Salon Serenade Orchestra, Lyra read. Thrill to the whisper of moonlight on the tranquil waters of the Mediterranean. How can moonlight whisper? She said. What a stupid idea. <laughs> Wait, Pan, look, on the back of this leaflet there was a timetable showing the dates of arrival and departure at various ports. The ship would leave London on Thursday, the 17th of April and return to Southampton on May the 23rd, calling at 14 cities en route. And someone had circled the date Monday, May the 11th and drawn a line from that to the scribbled words Café Antalya, Suleiman Square, 11 a.m. An appointment, said Pan. He leapt to the mantelpiece and stood to scrutinise the calendar. It's not this year. Wait, it's next year. These are the right days of the week. It hasn't happened yet. What are we going to do? Well, said Lara, we really ought to take it to the police. I, I mean, there's no doubt about that, is there? Oh, wait, there's something here. Something else. She turned the wallet upside down and shook it. A key with a round metal tag attached to it, bearing the number 36, fell out onto the table. That looks like, said Pan. Yes, we've seen one of those. We've had one of those. Where was it? Last year, he said, the railway station. Left luggage, Lyra said. He put something in a left luggage locker the bag they thought he ought to be carrying. It must be still there. They looked at each other with wide eyes.
0: Thank you. And you can hear the whole of The Secret Commonwealth read by the wonderful Michael Sheen, that's available to buy now. And whilst we're at it, just a reminder to subscribe to the Penguin podcast so you don't miss new free episodes twice a month. You can find us at sites like Spotify via a podcast app on your smartphone or on your Alexa enabled device. Earlier, we touched on the BBC adaptation coming up. The world premiere is Sunday the 3rd of November on BBC One and the BBC iPlayer. The screenplay is by Jack Thorne, starring Ruth Wilson, Lynn manuel Miranda and James McAvoy, amongst others. Can you give us any advanced nuggets from the production? I, you, you um, well, it? it's
1: very good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I should hope so.
1: Um, yeah, it's a wonderful cast. Uh, Daphne Keane, she plays Lyra. Um, and I've been very lucky in the, in the um, actors who played actresses who played Lyra. Um, Anna Maxwell Martin was wonderful on the stage of the National Theatre. Um, uh, Daphne Daphne Keane is now in this one. It was Dakota Blue Richards who played her in the the Golden Compass movie. She does a wonderful job. The whole the whole cast is 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 flawless. It's, it's wonderful.
0: Is it tricky to see your things adapted, or are you? Open to adaptations. Oh,
1: blase. Blase. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: it's, it's happened rather a lot, you see. It's been a stage play. It's been a movie. It's been a radio play. It's, you know, it's gone through a lot of different
0: incarnations. Incarnations.
1: Yeah. Um, and it's always interesting, but um, I, I tend to keep an arm's length from it because it's not my project. It's their project. Yeah. I've allowed them to do it, and they pay me some money.
0: It's always good. Uh,
1: uh, so I'm, I'm happy for them to get on with it. But they have consulted me. It
0: feels true and to the I've, spirit I've, of the have I've
1: commented on things i I've noticed about it, um, whether it's the writing or the set design or whatever it is. Yeah. And um, they've taken notice of them. So I'm, I'm very happy with the way it's gone.
0: And how are you getting on with your new book?
1: Well, I need some empty days in the diary. Yes. In fact, I need some empty weeks and months and possibly years in the diary. <laughs> And I shall go up to my room, and raise my table to the proper height, <laughs> and make sure I've got my pen and the paper. And I shall write the words, Chapter One.
0: Heaven, just wanted to say thank you to Philip Pullman for being here. And
1: well, thank you very much, Sophie, for taking time off during the promotion of your uh, delightful book,
0: Madame Boudoubard. Madame
1: Boudoubard, which we have to learn how to say.
0: I've written the book with the title that no one can say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank thank you. you very much.
0: Thank you so much. And thank you all for coming. And thank you- <clears throat> Discover 50 audiobooks from the Penguin Classics collection read by some of the UK and Ireland's best acting talent, from Fleabag's Sean Clifford and Andrew Scott to Game of Thrones' Natalie Dormer and star of Homeland David Harewood.
1: Say to yourself, first thing in the morning, Today, I shall meet people who are meddling, ungrateful, aggressive, treacherous, malicious, unsocial. All this has afflicted them through their ignorance of true good and evil. But I have seen that the nature of good is what is right, and the nature of evil what is wrong.
0: The 50 Penguin Classics in audio are available to download from Audible and iTunes now.